in the past, the way that scholars, critical data study scholars would talk about data extraction was predominantly around the paradigm of privacy and the idea that to give companies access to so-called personal data was to violate individual privacy and right to a certain kind of individual autonomy. And many critical data study scholars are now turning against that model for a bunch of reasons. One might be that we could talk about how the concept of privacy is itself like a concept of whiteness, like a, a variation of whiteness. We could talk about how it presumes a kind of individual liberal sort of self-possession that is maybe not adequate as a critical framework. But also you can talk about like norms around what constitutes private information and not private information have clearly changed. And so to talk, for instance, to a 21-year-old student about their right to privacy, it's not going to resonate in the same way that it might have done 20 years ago. What we all sign off on very easily every time we click yes to terms and agreements is an incredible violation of what we might have understood as personal privacy 20 years ago. And so critical data study scholars are moving away from that and towards these ideas around assetization. So what it means to have your personal data turned into an asset. And then the other concept that has become really important for my thinking around this has to do with the use of socially produced knowledge to private ends and particularly towards the automation of the labor that produced the knowledge in the first place. ChatGPT is a great example of this because of course, what ChatGPT lives on are these large language models produced by a machine learning by taking human social communication on places like Reddit, for instance, and turning it into the basis for these large language models, which then produce AI. And so we could talk about that in terms of privacy, but that wouldn't really make sense because by the time this data is cycled through all of these systems, it's not attached to you in any way, right? Nobody knows your specific eye color or your weight or your address. It's just about all of the data put together and turned into, not just into an asset, but into an asset that can then be used to, to replace human labor and social knowledge. So Marx has a great term for this, which is general intellect, which is this idea that what happens when all of what we do together as a species, as, as a kind of common humanity gets turned into a commodity, turned into a, a means of production and then used against us essentially. And so I think like that model of understanding what data means in this context is, is increasingly more useful than thinking about it in terms of so-called private data. To the American Vandal, from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm not Matt Seabold. Rather, using a small sample, only 75 words or so, of Matt Seabold's recorded voice, a text-to-voice tool called Overdub, which is part of the podcast editing platform, the script is creating this narration. This tool is designed for spot editing, to insert a few words that might be missing or garbled due to a flaw in the recording. But if a consumer podcast editing software can approximate a few words in Matt Siebold's voice after being trained on less than a minute of audio, imagine what more advanced versions of this program might be able to do after being trained on hundreds of hours of recorded speech by a public figure, like a politician or news anchor. Earlier this month, the script sent an email to Matt which posed the question whether artificial intelligence could be used to create deep fakes of any podcaster's voice, to which the company answered unequivocally, quote, yes, it definitely could. 
unquote. Hi, I'm not Anna Cornblue. I gave permission to Matt to use my voice. He's going to delete it once this episode is finished. He promised. In the last few episodes, this series has gotten pretty Pollyanna-ish about so-called new media. Booktubes and book talks, brittle paper and public books, pods and blogs, the post-print future of literary criticism. Don't get me wrong, I'm here for it. But let's throw a little baking soda on this electrical fire. The alleged end of literary studies has been predicted this past year by legacy media, just as artificial intelligence is being heralded as the solution to scholastic writing instruction, often by the same publications. The Atlantic marked the end of high school English last December. The Chronicle asked, will artificial intelligence kill college writing? The New Yorker has published half a dozen articles on the topic, including one titled, What's the Point of Reading Writing by Humans? Of course, it's no coincidence that literary criticism and writing instruction, both historically central to the discipline of literary studies, are being declared simultaneously obsolescent. Later in this episode, you'll hear from my friend, I mean, from Anna's friend, Ted Underwood, about all the ways AI will be useful to literary critics and how its development actually vindicates literary theory. But first, as Annie McClanahan suggests, it also vindicates collectives. Way back in episode three, Matt introduced the concept of Ponzi austerity. Drawing from the work of the heterodox economist and former Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, he argued that colleges and universities are being turned into money laundering vacuums for venture capital and private equity. Government investment in public education and government loans to students are being redirected to for-profit enterprises which provide inferior or even entirely fictional products and services to the institutions of higher education which are simultaneously and intentionally being hollowed out and deprived of the resources needed to fulfill their mission by administrators, boards of trustees, and state legislators who personally profit from systemic sabotage. While there are a wide variety of strategies for achieving Ponzi austerity, none has been pursued more aggressively than educational technology or edtech. Since the late 1990s, an ever-growing proportion of school budgets has been devoted not just to maintaining vital infrastructure, things like computer labs, Wi-Fi networks, and servers, but also procuring sector-specific software for everything from scheduling academic advising to proctoring exams to tracking the achievements of alumni. In 2021, venture capital invested more than $20 billion in edtech startups, nearly a fifth of the total market capitalization for the industry which then grew by nearly 40% the following year. For the investments in ed tech, those already made and those expected in the coming decade to pay off, schools will have to continue purchasing and subscribing, siphoning more of the budget, most likely at the expense of academic workers. While students have proven skeptical of and sometimes downright hostile towards ed tech platforms. Now, you may wonder what ed tech has to do with literary criticism. Indeed. Most of the interviews you've heard so far in Criticism Limited were recorded between March and July of this year. During this time, Matt was also doing research on the relationship between edtech boosterism and the academic labor movement. But then I had an epiphany. I mean, Matt had an epiphany while talking to Sarah Brulette. The interview was ostensibly about Wattpad and about Andy Hines' book, Outside Literary Studies. And you heard those parts of the interview earlier in the series. 
you may recall this line. My sense of the university's disposition toward especially the lower ranks of academic labor, like graduate students and adjuncts, is basically open hostility and irritation that they want anything. And all kinds of still prominent ideological justifications for that, like that it's an apprenticeship. <laughs> if you're a grad student, like apprenticeship to what? pray tell, or that it's great to have flexible work hours, or that their hourly wage is really high. And I'm talking about the administration at my own university, but I know these are common rhetorics. But the fact that they trot this out during contract negotiations is so offensive, and it just suggests like a total disregard of the actual lives and working conditions of these people. And I think they perceive them as spoiled, entitled is a common word. There's more hostility than there is bargaining in good faith going on in a lot of these cases. And as you, you've written about this yourself, the ed tech kind of thing, it's there's mm -hmm. so much of this is about creating systems and conditions and situations in which you won't need as many employees and you can create efficiencies and run a smoother system because you can get around the sticky fact of labor agitation on campuses. It wasn't until this moment that Matt realized he could not, in good conscience, whatever that means, complete this series without acknowledging that the most existential threat to literary criticism was educational technology, not because anything, including AI, was going to make criticism obsolete, but because the false promises of edtech grifters are designed to undermine the humanities and especially literary studies. And that's the crisis. Sarah reminded him of the essay he had written for Los Angeles Review of Books in February called Jason Wingard's EdTech Griftopia, which argued that the president of Temple University was trying to break the graduate student union to make room for bigger payments to the EdTech companies he shilled for in his books and speaking engagements. The lesson Matt had not fully absorbed until talking with Sarah is how EdTech attacks the humanities at a specific pressure point one which has been weakened by decades of defunding and de-skilling, and which we've discussed elsewhere in Criticism Limited. The insidious myth that teaching can be entirely disassociated from researching, writing criticism, and other forms of ongoing professional development. To EdTech grifters, humanities courses are ripe for automation because they presume the skills and bodies of knowledge associated with them to be static, complete, reproducible, and therefore scalable. This is, of course, absurd. But it happens to be very compelling to those who believe statues are history. A nation's culture is its patriotic documents. Critical race theory is about making kids feel bad. An American is a language. Conveniently, for EdTech lobbyists, those same people also tend to believe all English professors are communists. So fuck them. It's not the robots who are coming for our jobs, though that's good clickbait. But it's actually the capitalists, the financiers, the grifters, as usual. And as usual, the antidote is unionization. So this episode is about EdTech boosterism, artificial intelligence, and academic labor organizing. Let's hand it back to Matt and Sarah. The piece you mentioned was a sort of direct response to the Temple grad student strike. 
and was about the president of Temple who's coming out of a, a Goldman Sachs background and whose big idea is essentially the replacement of academic workers with surveillance technology, this sort of ed techification. And Annie McClanahan has been making this argument vehemently over the last year that the single biggest danger to the university is, I think she's been calling it the computerfication or something like that, but ed techification. Are these crises that are happening independent of one another? And by crises, we may not even be effective to call them that, but the way in which the university is being transformed by a techno-utopian capitalist ideology and simultaneously, we have these questions about the methodology of humanities fields like literary studies and whether those methods are compromised or antiquated. How are those two things related? Oh, that's such a hard question. But just to go back for one second to the ed tech thing and Annie McClanahan being always right, <laughs> another like related anecdote from the recent strike here, university administration was actively using the learning management system Brightspace to break the strike. Because people were on strike, they weren't doing grading. And we were debating, should we have an actual general grade strike? Should we refuse to submit grades at the end of term until all of the TAs are paid their whole contracts. We had all of these conversations going on. And meanwhile, we could see in our Brightspace pages that they added administrators suddenly who had access to our pages. And the university basically said, we'll go in and we'll just finish the grading. We'll hire scabs or whatever, and they'll do it. And perhaps it was a scare tactic, but in any case, it's revelatory of the capacity that these ed tech systems have to enable this sort of thing. In addition, of course, to all the other ways in which they ensure these particular kinds of surveillance and efficiency making, that's what they aim to do. But your question is about the corporatized ed tech Mm -hmm. whatever surveillance capitalism campus and the humanities and how we yeah. do what we do in terms of scholarship and obviously yeah. teaching and scholarship has traditionally been deeply interwoven as yeah. teaching becomes something that is increasingly onlineified that's annie's important to on onlineification i believe as teaching increasingly becomes deeply interwoven with surveillance capitalism. How does that affect and impact our ability to bring the methods of literary studies into the classroom? And what are those potential relations between the method wars and the yeah. increasingly precarious classroom spaces? I guess I have a couple of answers to that. Maybe this is a form of paranoid reading. After all, it's definitely not post-critical, but that a new site or terrain of paranoid reading is learning management systems and ed tech boosterism, and that we should be spending more time finding ways, and there are lots of strategies out there now, and people are writing about this, but to resist using ed tech and to resist the encouragement of onlineification. And that is the wars. <laughs> that we yeah. need to be having instead of another article about the post-critical turn or whatever, or about is it okay to love literature <laughs> or these sorts of debates. Because what is clear is that onlineification, ed tech boosterism, the digital university is actively hostile to 
the humanities. The dispositions or the modes of learning that it prioritizes and that it's built to sustain are not the humanities. It's more like button pushing, mm-hmm. <laughs> like multiple yeah. choice things. Keep where your eyes on the screen. Answer. Yeah, exactly. And not and things that are non-discursive, or things where there's an easy answer or a right and wrong answer. Other Very fundamentally uncritical. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And that it, it's because whatever they say about the motto here, we have so many terrible models, but one of the mottos has been anything but textbook. Because obviously having to read a textbook would be terrible. And now it's like online learning is it's anything but distant. (laughs) (laughs) But despite the way they market it, in the last year, I was doing online teaching and it's still, it is, it's distant. And I'm a very active educator. I love teaching. I devise all kinds of ways to make it more engaged, but I feel like a YouTuber when I'm doing it. And like I'm producing content for consumption and that's Mm -hmm. not what I want to do, but I feel like that's the mode that they're privileging and that any kind of engagement with what I'm saying is like, not really that important or it's just perfunctory and it's performative and it's going on. It's metricized, right? It's it's, metricized engagement as opposed to actual engagement. Yeah. Yes. And just the way that it it quantifies and surveils your level of interest in and engagement with the material. I do refuse to use these things where people can do Mm -hmm. just in time reacts (laughs) to whatever, because even just the fact of intellection, even just the fact of thought cannot be accounted for in these metrics, right? If you're listening, you're not passive necessarily, right? But they're all about, you have to check in, you have to check in and sign in, you have to constantly be pushing buttons. It always reminds me of social media. Like, how are you feeling? You can't just let people be in the room thinking and chiming in when they want to or whatever. Mm-hmm. The yeah. affordances of these things are truly terrifying, like in terms of if you wanted to keep track of what your students were doing and feed that information to the university. And here, especially when students are in first year, they use these metrics to reach out to students who are perceived as problematic, meaning they haven't pushed enough buttons. And then mm-hmm. it's all oh, their risk of dropping out. They haven't spent enough time online, right? This is the weird thing that we're dealing with right now is both the plaint that students spend too much time online and then simultaneously an evaluation of the time they've spent online in the places that we want them to be theoretically. And it's really not surprising that students struggle with the contradictory information about what they're supposed to be doing on the internet. Yeah. (laughs) And also like just when you have a learning management system and this kind of platformization of education that increasingly appears to be like social media or any other form, like a YouTube, whatever, then it's awfully hard to pay attention because the competing things all seem the same. I think these have these problems of like measure and value where it's all just kind of content and it becomes difficult to manage and assess like where to put your attention. At least that's what I've observed in my own child who's 13 because his online learning system, Google Classroom or whatever, appears very similar to anything else he does on the internet. Jason Wingard's EdTech Griftopia was published in late February just a few weeks after I started working on Criticism Limited. Exactly a month later, the Temple faculty authorized their no-confidence vote, and the following week, Wingard resigned. 
In the interim, Temple returned to the bargaining table, reinstated graduate student health insurance, and eventually delivered a contract that satisfied the union's demands. In April, Brian Alexander invited me to discuss my essay in the aftermath on his talk show, The Future Trends Forum, a fascinating new media venture which hosts highly interactive conversations about the future of education. Brian uses a video conferencing platform called Shindig, which is designed to increase audience engagement. But if you're a wallflower who prefers to listen while wearing out the floorboards, as I do, episodes are archived on YouTube. By the time I appeared on Future Trends Forum, I was working enthusiastically on this series, but I had not yet recognized how the two projects intersected. Nevertheless, in the segment you're about to hear, I sketch out what Brian calls a battle plan. As Sarah says, this certainly better merits a military metaphor than the method wars do. It is the successor to the Chicago fight, but on an international scale. And at stake is not just the diminishment of the prestige of literary studies within academia, but potentially its exile from it. Your, your article is, is just splendid. It's, it's so engaging, so powerfully written, and it also is so extensively researched. If you could begin by talking about what is the, I'm trying to think of a good word here. The management style isn't the right word, but kind of, what is the ideology espoused by now Temple's former president that you found so clearly deleterious to academia as you'd like to see it? There were many things in reading Jason Wingard's books that I found discomforting, problematic, sometimes outright offensive. And so it's hard to pick one thing. You can maybe start with the fact that he comes out of a management business school tradition that is, I would say, dehumanizing about workers, oftentimes referred to as human capital management. And clearly one way that he is constantly approaching education is through minimizing staffs, minimizing faculties, and if at all possible, replacing them with tech. And so I think if there's one sort of simple way to, to start this question, it is the ways in which labor and the people involved in that labor are being disregarded and sometimes simply disposed of in what is largely a sort of imaginary idea of what higher education, and I would say, though higher education is much of what Wingard talks about, these plans extend well beyond the university campus and certainly into secondary schools and primary schools. A form of educational interface that reduces the number of teachers, the number of instructional workers, and also reduces their input and their control and their autonomy within classroom spaces. This sounds like classic union busting. Yeah, that's where this all really started for me. I obviously have been following, as I'm sure many of you have, the growing academic labor movement over the last few years. At the end of last year, we had the largest academic worker strike, I believe, in history at the University of California. And so I was just following that developing movement. And when the Temple grad strike happened, one of the things that distinguished it was how 
hard the administration pushed back against its grad workers yeah. who were asking for what have come to be the pretty common requests from grad worker unions and Temple did not negotiate in good faith and they immediately started really strong, unprecedented union busting techniques. And so absolutely. One of the first things that I was asking was why is this administration pushing back so hard in a way that Columbia and NYU and University of California, as much as there had clearly been conflict in those places, it was not as aggressive as it was at Temple. That was the question that got me working on this essay was why? Why are they eager to antagonize their grad workers? And what I discovered or what I believe is they really thought they were disposable. Hmm. Hmm. So that they could just fire them all or drive them away by A, not agreeing to their demands and also B, cutting their tuition and medical care and then in the fall semester generate a crop of new ones. This was an opportunity for cost cutting and that either those workers would come back at equal or lower cost or getting rid of them or them resigning would provide an opportunity for trying new forms of instruction and building new relationships, probably with ed tech firms. Mm, okay, okay. So thank you. That's very, very clear. And, and, and that really helps. And in the chat, by the way, there's been some interesting responses. Let me take where you just left off as a buildup for a second question, which is what, what's the style of deploying educational technology here? Is it to replace human instructors? Is it to reduce the student experience directly? What's the plan here? I, I do think it varies from institution to institution. And I think that it's really important to acknowledge that this is not just a Temple problem, right? Temple was in some ways the vanguard at this moment. And, and I think Wingard epitomizes a set of ideas, ideology that we are going to see at a number of different institutions going forward. And I think there's a few things. One is a, an increase of remote instruction. One of the things that happened during the Tuxa strike was that the replacement instructors that were hired, oftentimes massively unqualified, were mm. immediately given a platform. I think they were using a platform called Panopto, mm -hmm. a really wonderful name to think about in this context, right? And among the, the many disruptions that the strike was used to rationalize was to move students back, at least to some degree, to remote instruction. As I'm sure many people here are, are well aware of, the opportunities associated with the pandemic and post-pandemic for ed tech companies that are providing some form of synchronous or asynchronous remote instruction, those opportunities were present for several years, and there's a, a strong incentive to keep them going. And so one place that I think absolutely we will continue to see colonizing of the university is through remote instruction. The other thing, obviously, automation. The hope for some of these platforms like Coursera and Udemy is eventually to get to the point where you can have faculty, professors, instructional designers creating classes that basically work automatically. There's slides, there might be lectures, audio, video content. You have to pay for it once, but then you can deliver the course over and over again. And the only thing that you're going to have to pay for repeatedly is 
grading. And maybe mm -hmm. even that can be automated to some extent. And so you know, we've got remote instruction, we've got automation, and the third place is absolutely surveillance. In what ways can we use ed technology to police and surveil student behavior? And obviously lockdown browser has been a popular one in recent years, giving a justification for the university to enter into students' homes, into their dorms, into their lives in various ways under the auspices of making sure that they don't cheat, making sure that they don't plagiarize, making sure that they are doing their work. And so I would say for me, those are the three vectors that worry me the most remote instruction automated instruction, and then surveillance. Wow. That's a battle plan, a plan of campaign. And just if, if I could, as one literature person to another, you use the word colonization. I'm wondering if you just unfold what you meant by that word yeah. in this context. So for me, this has to do with how I think about several entities collaborating in this situation. One, administrations and boards of trustees who are trying to think about like how to manage the costs of their institution. Another are these ed tech firms who are creating the software, the platforms that are being used to help cut those costs or at least to redistribute those costs. And then the third is the investment class, right? Venture capital, hedge funds, private equity, who are necessary to get these platforms off the ground, to keep them going until they can become, become profitable, because most of them aren't. Some of them are still a long way from being consistently and reliably profitable, right? And for them, this is where I start to think about the, the sort of idea of colonization. The venture capital, private equity model that has existed and proliferated over the last 15 years or so, which I call in the piece, the Frankensteinian mollusk. It, <laughs> it is based on the idea of disruption, right? They like to call it disruption, the disruption of existing industries. I think it's more accurate to call it something more like parasitical capitalism or parasitical Ooh. entrepreneurship. Uber and DoorDash are maybe the easiest examples of this. You take an existing industry like taxis or restaurants and you create what my colleague Michelle Chihara calls a runway of trust hmm. because you're venture funded, because you don't need to make money immediately. You promise that you can make the industry more efficient and more profitable. And hmm. sometimes in the short term, that is true, that both consumers and workers are going to benefit, and for a brief time, they might. But over the long run, the model is just to take a larger and larger cut. Right? Mm -hmm. And that cut is going to come from the drivers, from the restaurateurs, from the cooks, from the service staff, in this case, from the faculty, from the administrative staff. And to change the ways that business is done in such a way that the tech firm and their investors are getting a cut of every transaction in that industry. But their value added declines as time goes by and it becomes very minimal. And all of that cut that the, the venture capitalist or the private equity firm is taking, it's all coming at the expense of the people doing the bulk of the work. Or 
it forces a rise in prices, which then means it's coming out of the pocket of customers, or maybe if we think about how this will look in education, out of the pocket of students who are already mm -hmm. debt strapped, as are their parents. This is, so friends, you can see this is what a terrible host I am. I, I pick one word out of our guest's wonderful excursion. And then this leads to a whole other analysis. Of, thank you, Matt, that's a brilliant take time. Let me cease my interrogation. Okay, Matt, this is from an English professor, so you know this is trouble. Let me bring Brian Deo from Grand Valley State. You, hey, you, Brian. You had a question about academic labor. Yeah, so just uh, real quick, I follow you on Twitter, Matt. Nice to, to see you, not exactly in person. But uh, a colleague who you interviewed on your wonderful podcast, The American Vandal, said this very recently. It really struck me. This is Annie McClanahan, and she says, put simply, Onlineification and EdTech are going to be the site, all caps, for higher ed labor struggles or for utter destruction of the university in the next decade. And we need to be making decisions and mobilizing and asking questions now, all caps, with that in mind. I just wonder if you could weigh in on that. Yeah, I 100% agree. One of the people who has been most influential on my thinking about higher ed, about labor, about its relevance to financialization and debt. So this is somebody who I'm very frequently going to agree with, and I, I utterly agree with her in that capacity. What she calls onlineification is not the greatest word, but I 100% agree with the thrust of what she's saying. And I think that this is where faculty unions and faculty organizations, we need to be putting our attention. And if there is such a thing as faculty governance and shared governance, which a lot of institutions still give lip service to, then this is one area where the faculty should have at least an equal seat at the table, if not be leading the institutional strategy and mission, making decisions about what kinds of platforms, what kinds of online courses, what is going to be the digital strategy for the institution. I think Annie's right. Our colleagues, by and large, are not yet fully aware of that coming fight. Mm -hmm. But I think that progress is being made. But again, I, I think we need to give the credit primarily to grad worker and contingent worker unions that are waking people up, right? Yes. I don't write this piece if I don't have my attention drawn to the situation at Temple. And based upon what I have heard, the Temple faculty probably don't hold a no confidence vote if this information isn't starting to trickle out. In some cases, through reading my piece or pieces that were done by journalists at the Philadelphia Inquirer, that faculty at Temple, I think, were woken up by the, the Tugsis strike. And if they don't hold that no confidence vote, I don't think he steps down. I think there's a sort of direct correlation from Tuxa strike drawing attention to Wingard's larger plans to faculty actually acting according to their shared governance responsibilities. And now hopefully demanding that they have a seat at the table when it mm -hmm. comes to questions like installing Panopto or which platform we're going to use or what courses are going to be available online. Mm -hmm. I hope they will be more vigilant on those questions going forward at Temple at least. And certainly, uh, again, 
I agree wholeheartedly with Annie on this question. I've been engaging with the work of Annie McClanahan, who is Associate Professor of English at UC Irvine and the author of Dead Pledges, for years. And she appeared on The American Vandal last year, an episode called A Hedge Fund with a Drone Fleet, to discuss, as that title suggests, the triangulation of financialization, automation, and surveillance in education work. But it wasn't until Sarah nudged me that I realized Annie needed to be part of this conversation too, even if there was some overlap with that episode. And when I reached out to her, she sent me a chapter she was working on with a graduate student, Louise McCune. That chapter will be part of a collection edited by Andy Hines, who you may remember from episode five, called University Keywords, under contract with Johns Hopkins. And this work in progress really crystallized what they could bring to this discussion. Most of the time when we talk about ed tech, we're talking about teaching. And one of the things that has been a theme throughout the series has been a tendency to disentangle research and teaching, particularly for humanities faculty, perhaps particularly for literary studies faculty, is that our research responsibilities and our teaching responsibilities are often treated as independent things, one of which may be, could be thrown away, that our research may not really matter. One of the things that's come up over and over again in the series is we need to make sure that we protect the interdependency of those two things. And so I'd like you to speak to, like, how does ed tech relate to that disentanglement and what happens to our research methods if ed tech starts to colonize our teaching spaces? There's a couple of things that I want to say about that. One is just to point to the problem of the fantasy that we can separate our intellectual life and our research life from our labor conditions. And I think one of the reasons that I'm glad to have Louise here is that as a graduate student, I think that fantasy is much less available to a graduate student, whereas I think faculty often, because of the particular professional position that protects us from these concerns, we can imagine that our research life can be separate from our teaching life and especially from our working conditions. I also think the other thing that I would say at the start would be something like that, to distinguish a little bit between saying that ed tech affects our teaching insofar as it's a tool, insofar as it's something we choose to use or not use, and saying that ed tech has to start to impact our pedagogy as well. So the example that I often give of this is around the sort of crisis around ChatGPT, where a lot of folks I'm hearing are talking about responding to ChatGPT by no longer teaching take-home essays, period. And I find that really distressing because I think that what that risks doing is essentially accepting the de-skilling of our labor that ChatGPT already portends, right? So if we understand ChatGPT to represent a threat to university faculty and not simply because it allows students to quote unquote plagiarize or use a machine, but also because it threatens to de-skill our labor and make our work more automatable or more de-skillable than it was before, then when we say that I'm just not going to teach writing anymore, then we essentially are agreeing to be de-skilled even before the university has forced it on us. And so I think when we talk about the way that ed tech might transform our pedagogy, it's not just about the tools which we use or don't use or how we use them or how we talk to students about them. It's also about how we think more deeply about what we're teaching and why and how.
I know Corey Robin just recently made exactly the argument that you're alluding to there, I think on his Substack that he's going to approach the encroachment and the improvement of ChatGPT this coming year by only teaching in-class writing. And I agree that seems to be an abdication. Louise, did you want to follow up on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess, especially for workers in the university like myself, like grad students, this idea of the separateness of teaching and research just like doesn't pertain in the experience of our work and uh, in our working conditions. Something that I thought about a lot earlier this year when grad students and postdocs and academic researchers went on strike at the University of California, especially within our unit of grad student workers, many of us go back and forth between teaching appointments and student researcher appointments. And so the idea that like those kinds of work could be very separate and distinguishable from one another, just like it makes sense for us all to be a part of the same union. It makes sense for us to all be fighting for our improved working conditions together because in many cases, like an individual just quarter to quarter is going back and forth between research work and teaching work as an illustration of the point that that concept, (laughs) that they're very different, just doesn't obtain. One of the things that I found very interesting and also, of course, frightening about your research is that you identify a trend that is across a number of different platforms and educational settings, disciplinary settings, which is a trend towards pedagogies of punishment whenever you are deploying ed tech. And I was hoping you would explain why that is, what that looks like, this tendency that once we start using education technology, once we move online, the teacher almost inevitably becomes more of a warden than a collaborator, a mentor, right? All the stereotypes of the teacher figure become more carceral, more punitive when we move to an online or software-based platform. So why is that? One reason is simply that you have depersonalized it, right? You no longer have a direct relationship, an embodied relationship with the students. Your class is probably a lot bigger. The reason that Turnitin and these kinds of platforms have long been mandated for adjuncts and graduate students in particular is also because those are the populations that are most likely to be teaching large numbers of students, where the expectation is if you're teaching 100 or 200 students per quarter or per semester, you can't possibly be checking to make sure that they're not plagiarizing their essays. So you have to use this tool in order to ensure that they're not. So it's about the sort of upscaling, the economies of scale that ed tech affords. And then those economies of scale then produce their own crises, which then also have to be managed by ed tech. And the result often is some kind of pedagogy of punishment, some kind of punitive or carceral technology to do the surveillance that you can't do via your intimate knowledge of students and their capacities. So that's a lot of it. But it is really interesting to think about how the student resistance to the remote proctoring systems during the pandemic was really effective. It actually worked for the most part. Louise and I did discover that the University of California had not been able to actually cancel its contract with these providers that it was then telling faculty not to use. But in a lot of schools, the contracts got canceled or faculty were told don't use these remote proctoring systems because they're full of all this algorithmic bias and black students are being 
being asked to hold a cell phone light above their head for the entire time that they're taking an exam so that enough light shines on their face. It was all kinds of incredibly fucked up stuff that was being required of students that were subject to these kind of surveillance technologies. And the student response to those things actually worked. Like it produced immediate change. There was a congressional inquiry where it's a little bit more disheartening is that like those same kinds of technologies are being used for all of these kinds of like softer forms of surveillance as well. So that's like student outcomes, student wellness, all of these tracking systems and predictive analytics and algorithmic outcomes predicting. And those are going much less noticed. But it was a kind of a moment to also remember that it's not even just, I mean, we were talking earlier about different strata of labor in the university. It also has to be students. So one of the sort of ways that ed tech sells itself, right? Like one of the promises of ed tech from like an industry perspective is that it's labor saving, right? The kind of catchphrase for this is unbundling, like the product, let's say it's a class, you can unbundle the sort of different tasks that go into teaching a class. And instead of having one teacher do all of the different things, plan, instruct, advise, meet students in office hours, grade, those things are split up and can be rationalized that way. You save on academic labor by de-skilling in that manner. And yeah, Robert Ovetz writes compellingly about this, I think, about how the unbundling aspect of education technology impacts pedagogy. Basically, the idea is that if you are breaking up a course in that way, you're also going to necessarily be reducing the student experience of being in a course to a set of objectives. And I'm all for objectives. I think it's um, really important as a teacher to, to go into a course with a sort of set idea about what I want the students to come away being able to understand or being able to do. But when that's the only thing, right, it's very easy for my task on the other side of the Canvas page to become, okay, it's a yes or no. Did this student do this thing or did they not? Which is a very different kind of assessment than the more qualitative forms of assessment that are possible when we are person to person or even talking across a a Zoom channel. But the fact is when we're talking about online education, we are mostly talking about kinds of instruction where students very rarely interact one-to-one with their teachers. And I think that that's part of how the teacher's role is changed because all you can do is look at the LMS and see if someone has completed a task. And now that's even a version of it where it's a person seeing that someone has completed a task, which is not always the case. The other way, of course, that things like LMSs can become pedagogies of punishment also comes back to grad student labor movements, which is that in a lot of these contexts, this has been happening in Michigan, when grad students unions threaten grade strikes, the university can then say, because we manage the LMS, we can scrape all the data of the 
grades that we have for your class so far. We can accept your assignments for your classes, even if you're not teaching your classes. We can track your communication with your students and tell whether you're on strike or not. The sort of surveillance capacities of these systems are not just pedagogical and not just with students. They also bear directly on the ability of graduate students and, and adjuncts and others to engage in certain kinds of labor actions without threat of punishment or without being essentially worked around, routed around by the technology so that the university can make it impossible for grad students to have a, a grade strike, for instance. There's several more questions I would like to ask you, but there's one I want to make sure we make time for because I think it's really crucial to the series. The arc of the series has tended to suggest that digital spaces have been very good for literary criticism. Just a few examples. They talked with Ina Hiodoro about brittle paper and the way that blog has acted as a hub, not just for criticism of African literature, but also the actual creation of African literature. Various examples of, of podcasts like High Theory and Remarkable Receptions. Obviously, the sort of famous para-academic publications like Public Books and LA Review of Books, right? One of the emerging theses of this series has been that digital platforms have been very good for the creation and circulation and diversification of literary criticism. Why is the opposite true for pedagogy? This is like one of the tensions and one of the reasons to bring you in and to examine this question is... If digitization has created all these opportunities for literary critics and has arguably ushered in what Ryan Ruby has called a golden age of literary criticism, why is it not appropriate for those same people to use it in their classrooms and to use it for their work within the structure of the university? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Look, I'm fully online. I'm a Twitter head. I'm not in any way a sort of quote unquote Luddite, a term which is itself already pretty misunderstood. And I use a lot of digital technologies and particularly the kinds of digital types of writing. I encourage those in my students and I believe in them. I think one thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is Louise and I have both, I think in this conversation, used this term de-skilling. And I think it's important to understand what that does and does not mean. De-skilling First of all, many people find it as if it's saying something offensive about the kind of work. It's not a description of the work itself, nor of the worker. It's a description of a process that happens to work. And that process involves rationalization. It involves speed up. It involves economies of scale. In pedagogy, it often, as Louise was saying, involves the unbundling of content from skills, for instance. Or, Decommodification or, sometimes to... Yeah. Yes, sure, exactly. It refers to a process. And the reason I bring it up is that because when I was first talking with my colleagues about the problems of onlineification, I often would have people say, you keep using this term de-skilling, but I feel like I'm learning all of these really valuable skills. And understand where they're coming from, right? I understand that when you first start to learn the different things that Canvas can do, it's good. It's useful. There's plenty of stuff there that's worthwhile. And there's important skills to learn. It's important, for instance, to really spend a lot of time on ChatGPT and understand what it can do and not to pretend as if it doesn't exist. How are you going to use it in the classroom? How are you going to work around it? How are you going to acknowledge its existence and get students themselves to think critically about it and with it and through it? 
And all of those are absolutely important skills to learn and to teach and to think through. I think where it becomes a problem is, first of all, when it becomes a way for the intercession of venture capitalism and private equity capital into university spaces. You know, one of the things that was really interesting about studying the history of ed tech, particularly like the last, say, 20, 30 years, is that if you look at something like Canvas, universities used to build those systems themselves yes. in-house, right? Which means that university researchers, university teachers, grad students, undergrads, everybody was involved in creating the tools internally that the university would use, right? And that kind of model seems to me to be, in some sense, like a kind of ideal. It's not to say that like those kinds of in-house tools couldn't probably be used for surveillance or for other kinds of purposes that we might find ultimately nefarious, but it's very different than the having- The incentives would be lessened for sure. The yeah. incentives would be far lessened. And it would, they would also be, you know, those systems were a little janky. I'm old enough to remember Pine, right? Like we all remember like those like early email systems, early Blackboard systems, message board systems, like they were a little half-assed, they were a little janky. And that's an appealing form of technology from my perspective. What would it mean to build our own essentially? But more to the point, you have universities signing these massive contracts with these companies paying immense amounts of dollars. This is far and away the fastest growing sector of the tech world right now. It's not just in universities, it's absolutely K through 12, right? That is another conversation that ought to be incredibly disturbing to anybody who has kids in the K through 12 system, for instance, or who teaches in it. But it's a huge amount of money sloshing around in this sector. And the main source of profits in that sector are not even the subscription fees that universities are paying to these companies. It's the fact that the companies are scraping the data, right? Sometimes it's metadata, so they're able to get around FERPA and other sort of privacy considerations, but they are assetizing an immense amount of data and intellectual property. And that's not just the student papers and the student comments. It's also what the faculty are doing. It's the curriculum itself. It's the recorded lectures. Like all of that is being taken by private companies right now. And we're just giving it away to them. And we're not even just giving it away. Universities are paying the company for the company to extract the data that the company will then use to improve its own service or that the company can then sell off to some other person. Yeah, something that I was really surprised to learn about while doing this work with Annie is just how much of this for-profit creep has happened via ed tech on the non-profit sector of higher education. When I first started learning about this stuff, I really associated distance and online modalities with the for-profit colleges that certainly innovated them and at one point taught the majority of online students. But what I've learned is that it's actually the nonprofit sector, private, nonprofit, and public colleges and universities who are the bigger players here. Two thirds of fully online degree seeking students are enrolled in the nonprofit sector. And that's a portion that's growing. I guess, like, you know, in response to the question about this sense of pessimism that Annie and I are exuding about technology in this sort of pedagogical space. Yeah, I think I'm not pessimistic about like tech 
per se, I'm pessimistic about this evident conflict between the for-profit motives of the companies to which we are outsourcing these technological services and the institutional mission of universities and colleges in the nonprofit sector. So yeah, that's why I think we should all be aware of what's going on. And something else that I've learned in the course of working with Annie on this is just like how difficult it is as somebody working within the university to understand how these private public partnerships are being brokered. In the case of Annie's research into the conditions at UC Irvine, just to understand how it is the case that you know, we in our classes in composition and English can use Canvas took like a months long FOIA process in order to be able to see those contracts. And then once we got the contracts, we had questions not only about what's in them, which are an important set of questions, not only like how much is the university paying for these services? What are the terms that the companies and the institution agree to with respect to use of student information, with respect to things like termination or contract extension? Like these are important things to think about. We were also like, Annie and I had questions about like, how these contracts came to be, what has to happen at the level of the campus or the university system in order for there to be an agreement between Canvas and the UC. And basically what we learned is that these decisions, these negotiations are taking place in like decision-making silos that are removed from faculty governance. The contracts that we were looking at, the sort of people on the university side who were deciding, oh, is this a good use of of university funds? Is it going to actually improve pedagogy and accessibility without jeopardizing personal privacy or intellectual property? The people asking those questions sometimes, you know, it is a group of, of as small as two people and they are not faculty. And I think out of necessity, because whatever, we were in an emergency state, sometimes the purchase was made even without a contract having been decided on. That's why I have goosebumps about some of this stuff. It seems like these partnerships, these public, private public partnerships represent a huge windfall to industry and the people in the public institutions who might have a stake in determining what those relationships look like, don't know how the, those partnerships operate. And for Annie and I, it took some work to figure it out. Louise is opening up the Ponzi austerity playbook here. EdTech is frequently the cause of budgetary crises, which it is then called upon to solve. Enormous binding contracts are signed at the level of the executive suite, even the board of trustees, without any oversight or the divulging of conflicts of interests. EdTech executives and investors are frequently college and university trustees, while university presidents and administrators frequently sit on the boards of directors or act as consultants for EdTech firms. Once these contracts are signed, they must be honored. So when the institution faces a budgetary crisis, it looks elsewhere for cost-cutting. 
and the promises often made by the same individuals who signed the contracts that created the crisis in the first place, that efficiencies may be found by cutting instructional staff and replacing them with more EdTech contracts. Think, for instance, of Gordon G.'s suggestion that the dissolution of the World Languages and Literatures Department at West Virginia University could be ameliorated by institutional subscriptions to language learning apps. One crisis justifies the enforcement of austerity on academic labor and a technological disruption of instruction that creates a new crisis which justifies more austerity, a death spiral which, unchecked, will eventually redirect all of the institutional funds to private investors, leaving behind a husk of empty classrooms, vacant buildings, timed-out quizzes, and automated slideshows playing to no one in particular. As Luis and Annie note, one of the most gnarly weapons for bringing about this onlineified horror is unbundling. Within an EdTech course environment, unbundling entails dividing the tasks historically performed by a single instructor, curriculum development, course planning, lecturing, discussion leading, assignment creation, grading and assessment. Automating as many of these tasks as possible and doling out the remainder piecemeal to part-time workers, many of whom will not be required to possess terminal degrees in the field, thus increasing competition and suppressing labor costs. It's textbook gigification. But what this unbundling also implies, for most academic workers, is a complete eradication of the expectation for professional development in the form of research, publication, conferencing, even reading. Those instructors who remain will not have the time, nor potentially the training, to create new knowledge in their field, nor any incentive beyond self-actualization to develop their own personal knowledge base. This EdTech Griftopia is, in fact, designed to impoverish humanity's research, which remains, as we've discussed throughout this series, the backbone to all criticism, whether academic, para-academic, or popular. And as yet, the only meaningful resistance to it has been mounted by academic labor unions. As Sharnak Basu noted last episode, the role that unions play in producing theory and criticism is often underrated. On the same day I spoke with Annie and Louise, it just so happened that the C-19 podcast, Pod Mother to the American Vandal, as Ashley Ratner is fond of noting, published an episode about how unionization impacts graduate student research. While graduate student unions have existed for well over half a century, in the last two decades, and even in the last few years, North America has experienced a wave of labor activity from graduate student workers. The student workers of Columbia reached a tentative agreement after an historic 10-week strike. At about the same time, the University of California system was forced to include thousands of student researchers in their graduate union. Between when we submitted our C-19 podcast proposal and when this episode goes live, tens of thousands of academic workers, including graduate workers at Yale, the University of Chicago, Johns Hopkins University, and Northwestern University have already won their unions. As a result, an increasing number of literary studies PhDs were born from a union. In organizing, there's a phrase, the union difference. 
But what difference does it make to our scholarship that more and more junior scholars made their way through graduate school in the crucible of labor action? Do acts of organizing, one-on-one conversations with storytelling and question asking, and strategic moves like social mapping and structure tests influence how we approach literature? What does a budding scholar of 19th century sensation fiction add to a union card drive? This podcast episode grows out of a panel on graduate student organizing and scholarship at the MLA conference back in January 2023 in San Francisco. The voices you just heard were those of Max Chapnick and Lawrence Lorraine Mullen, who were the producers and hosts of the C-19 PhDs Who Union episode. I recommend listening to the whole thing, which you'll be able to find in the bibliography for this episode at marktwainstudies.com backslash unbundling. But I'm just going to highlight an excerpt from late in the episode featuring one of their guests, Francesca Colonese. We're informed by the practices that came before us, but we're also seeing that feeling of what's missing in our university are more teachers. That when I talk about my instructional practices, I also get into debates with my colleagues about, okay, so what's the ideal way to do writing assessment? What's the best way to present certain topics and deal with doing lessons that interact with talking about systemic oppression in our classrooms? And the answer to all of our pedagogical problems is you can't simply keep stuffing more students in a classroom and having the same results or increasing your output, what's missing is more teachers. My writing instruction would be better if my classroom was smaller. And it's as simple as that. And that's a labor movement question as much as it is anything about pedagogy, anything about how I practice my teaching. And that's part of where, particularly when more and more of My peers do not find jobs when they're stuck in a cycle of being beholden to adjunct labor because they can't move for a one-year position, whether it's for family reasons, whether it's for economic reasons, that they can't take the risk on nine months of health insurance only, whatever it is, that makes them beholden to this problem of I've got to take on more work to justify my presence continuing at my own university. And that is part of where what our students see is just fundamentally a lack of instructors, that they would get a better education if our labor was less contingent, if it was something where there was simply more of an emphasis on having strong numbers of teachers at the university. And I see this across departments. I see this where people teaching classes at my university receive very little warning what they're going to have to help out, where people can't be prepared, where people can't deliver the quality of instruction they want to because of labor issues. And so that becomes something where We say our working conditions are our students' learning conditions, but it's fundamentally true that the amount of time we can spend working on our teaching is dependent on how many 
colleagues we have. Over the last 25 years, the period during which EdTech has become increasingly central to higher education, faculty course loads have risen at all ranks. Student to faculty ratios across all institutions and disciplines have risen more than 20%. Faculty salaries, adjusted for inflation, have actually declined, while the size and cost of administrations have tripled with six and even seven-figure compensation packages for upper-level administrators becoming common, and ever larger portions of budgets devoted to public-private partnerships. As Francesca notes, on many campuses, the calculus is depressingly simple. Fewer instructors taking on more classes, each with more students, leaving less time for each student in each class and vanishingly small amounts of time for ongoing professionalization, which renders instructors less effective, more burned out, and also yields less innovative research with which they might reinvigorate themselves and their courses. EdTech is hardly the only factor in the Ponzi austerity death spiral, but it's a major one. And I asked Annie and Louise to discuss how their research has been informed by the recent University of California Strip. There was just a podcast released this morning by the C19 organization that's about like, how does belonging to a union shape your scholarship? And I'd like to ask a version of that question, right? How is this academic working movement shaping literary criticism or literary studies in this moment? I'll just say that as a faculty member who was around and very interested in what was happening in the UC strike, I was constantly struck by the fact that I couldn't imagine why more of my colleagues weren't hanging out around the strike and being curious around the strike because it was so amazingly fascinating. One thing about it was that like I personally felt constantly like you're living in a moment in history, right? This is a historic strike. It's historic at all kinds of levels. It's historic in size. It's historic in length. It's historic in terms of the demands that were being made. It was a historic contract in terms of the demands that were won in every possible way. It was so different than anything else that had happened before. And the energy of that, like I found really profound. I mean, I would talk to folks on the picket line, and I'm sure Louise had these same conversations where you realized you were having more conversations and seeing more people than you had in at least three years since the pandemic. It was really amazing. It was an amazing space to be in and an amazing moment of possibility. And so for me, it gave a kind of urgency to the work. And I also feel like I learned a lot from it, like because of the way that the UC union posed its demands around cost of living. I became really interested in the history of cost of living struggles and like how cost of living struggles relate to the rise, for instance, of an economy based in service work. And so one of the reasons that Louise and I started doing the research together that we've been doing is because I realized that as somebody who was writing a book about contemporary labor and contemporary service work, that it would be really stupid of me not to look at my own work site as well as part of that history and as a place where those questions were also getting worked out in various and contradictory ways. And so that's what led me to be interested in looking at University of California's policies around education 
ed tech and thinking about my own labor in that tradition. Again, that's the thing that graduate students have been teaching faculty to do for the last many years through their labor movements is precisely as Louise just said, to think about the ways in which our research and our intellectual lives cannot be separated from our working lives and our working conditions. And to me, the grad student movement like shows that in this incredibly clear and also very inspiring way, because it's a very different way of seeing those connections rather than the way that faculty often do, which is that they see administrative conversations or institutional conversations as like a burden, like as something that we're forced yeah. to do by the administration rather than as an obligation and also a, a, a space of intellectual curiosity. I just want to follow up on what you said in that it shows the sort of continuity of the academic worker movement in the U.S. at this moment that right now the ongoing graduate student strike at University of Michigan, it seems as though the major point of conflict is exactly what you were talking about, how to define cost of living. That was at the center of the University of California strike, and it now seems as though one of the things the University of Michigan administration is really trying to hold their line on is we're not going to define it in the, the terms you want us to define it in. And the Michigan grad students are also holding the line on that. And that seems to be one of the, the points of dispute that it just shows, right, this movement each ensuing strike has consequences for the next ensuing strike. And, and equally, each administration that is forced to roll over for its workers inspires the next administration to greater intransigency. Yeah, yeah. The number of times that I have heard faculty, both during and, and after the strike, say something like, I know that this amount that they were being paid is not enough to live on, but is it really fair for them to be paid this amount for 20 hours of work a week. And I think there's one version of responding to that, which is the, a version that the union often does, which is to say it's actually in practice much more than 20 hours of work a week. And that is true. But the other way of responding to that is to say, if you are saying, I understand this is not enough to live on, why does there have to be a second half to that sentence? Why is the fact that it's not enough to live on not enough? And what would it mean to assume that we can quantify the sort of productivity or the output of teaching labor as if it's other kinds of labor where the output is easier to quantify? The discourse of a sort of fair wage in the way that it was conceived during industrialization is not available to the kind of work that teachers do, that people that work in hotels do, that people that work in restaurants do, that Uber drivers do. Like that version of productivity is not available to that labor. And so what we need to be talking about instead is can people survive on this amount of money? There's no second half to that sentence needed. Right. The, the delusion of metricization that you referred to earlier, I think is so rampant in academia, right? Like contracts that are based on things like 30% service, 20% research, 50% teaching. What does that even mean? The, the measurements are so fake. Louise, who actually is a member of a union, right? Like how has that membership shaped your thinking about your research and scholarship and the path of professionalization? Yeah. One thing I'm thinking about is the sort of attitudes of academic scholarship are often, not always, this is a nice counterpoint to what I'm about to say, like what we're doing right here, but they're often very sort of isolated and individualized, right? I'm developing my argument for my dissertation and I am going to share that argument, which is my own. And I guess one experience 
of being a part of academic organizing during my time as a graduate student is of realizing how different the modes of being a part of a democratic organization, member-led organization, where we're the ones to make it happen, right? We're the ones to make the strike happen. We're the ones to deliberate among ourselves to decide what our demands are, what it would mean to have fair conditions of work at the UC, what it would mean for the UC to be like a truly public university. And Deciding on those things, it's a process that involves a lot of people and a lot of productive debate, and it's collaborative in a way that I think oftentimes academic work is not. I think Annie's anecdote about like how we were seeing each other at the picket line in ways that we don't see each other as regularly or as fully (laughs) during the sort of normal course of our work and study is illustrative. In order to make a action of 48,000 people happen, (laughs) you have to see each other constantly. And I guess thinking about like how you started us off, Matt, talking about the response to the sort of encroachment of ed tech capital on scholarship and on teaching, it has to be a collective response. My sense is that the kinds of political education that grad students across the country are receiving or are committing to, are involved in, in the course of their union involvement is going to be crucial in that response. And I know that there are faculty unions too who are learning the same lessons and developing in that way as well. But I think of the way that I'm being professionalized as a grad student as sometimes separate and almost at odds with the sort of methods and ways of relation that are successful within an organizing context. But I do think within what we're talking about here, it's going to be very important that academic workers are able to work together to deliberate with one another about what our priorities for our profession are and do the hard work of executing the things that we need to execute in order to make the changes that we decide are needed. For me, that was the greatest lesson of the Temple University grad strike was that the turning point came when the faculty union, which was not on strike, actually started voting no confidence on various administrators or threatening to vote no confidence on various administrators. And that was clearly when the administration came back to the table and started negotiating in good faith. And I think that's something we need to be very aware of, that the cross-ranked solidarity is something that is going to be incredibly powerful. We saw it at Rutgers as well, where all the academic workers went on strike simultaneously and the university basically shut down. And I think that's something that we need to be very keen to is that the encroachment of education technology will in some ways be made possible if we silo ourselves according to rank and according to discipline, according to departments, as is always the case with academic labor, division is going to be the way in which the administration uh, exploits all of us. I just was going to add one more thing, which is that I think that's really like what you said is really true. And it's one of the things that has differentiated this wave of strikes as a whole from past graduate student labor action is the ways that faculty have become involved. And there's a really interesting ed tech component to that, actually, I think, which is that 
I've been in the UC system. I was a, in the UC system as an MA student and a PhD student for uh, about 10 years in the early 2000s and was involved, was a UAW bargaining team member and unit chair and all of that, and was involved in, a, in two different strikes, UAW strikes. And at the time, the ask of faculty was something like move your class off campus. The faculty were not largely canceling classes, and they certainly weren't canceling classes for extended periods of time, as many faculty did during this most recent strike. And the interesting thing about that, I think, is that the reason that the sort of move your class off campus thing became unavailable as a form of honoring the picket line is precisely because we learned during COVID and as a result of onlineification that having class in another location off campus does not make it any less a university activity. And so it became clear for me, at least, simply moving the class to Zoom was like not enough. That was not an adequate show of solidarity. But the university was very eager to encourage faculty to do precisely that, right? Faculty who didn't want to be, quote unquote, crossing the picket line, but wanted to keep teaching were encouraged to move their classes to Zoom. As if that, in the wake of the pandemic, looked like anything other than simply a sort of minor change of modality it would not have been, from my perspective, honoring the picket line. And so I think that's really interesting. And then the other thing is just to open up the the, the topic of talking about why it is that ed tech in particular, we will never be able to fight that battle if we don't do it across different lines of instructional labor, like from graduate students to adjuncts to tenure line faculty, precisely because if you look at the history of mechanization, de-skilling and automation, it always comes for low-wage workers first. Like those are always going to be the workers that are first affected by this. You can read the first people writing about automation in the mid-20th century were Black auto workers precisely because there was a kind of last hired, first fired logic that was coming for the newest group of laborers first. And you can look at this with respect to migrant labor. There's a whole history of this, of what happens when these new technologies are first introduced. And so if you look in the university too, who is going to be impacted first by various forms of de-skilling, onlineification, and privatization, it's always going to be graduate students and adjuncts. So for instance, Many graduate students and adjuncts do not have the right that faculty have to say, I'm not going to use Turnitin.com, right? They have to use it. They don't have the right to say, I'm not going to use the learning management system in the way that it's being introduced to me. I'm going to choose some other platform or I'm going to choose some other way of doing things because they don't have the same kinds of academic freedom that faculty do. And so if we want to fight things like Turnitin.com or remote proctoring of exams or onlineification or the rise of asynchronous teaching or any of these other kinds of things that Louise and I have been looking at and thinking about, there's no way to do that without solidarity across all of these different constituencies of labor. So, we've come to that point. I tried not to. I really did. It wasn't exactly that I had my head in the sand, but Rather, I was overexposed. I'm on the ad hoc artificial intelligence task force at Elmira College. I teach honors writing every winter, so I'm privy to all the discussions about AI related to writing instruction. I just didn't want to do it anymore. But as I said to Ted Underwood when I wrote him less than a month ago, I just gotta. And as we close out this rather terrifying Halloween episode, I think it's appropriate that we turn to somebody like Ted, who's open to the possibility 
that although AI may certainly prove to reinforce the edtech invasion which has laid siege to higher education, it also has the potential to disrupt the disruptors. Ted is a self-described text mining addict who has been working on distance reading, large language models, and other methods of computational literary study for decades. He's a professor of English and information science at University of Illinois. He's kind of a technophile, but not the Silicon Valley sort. And so he's the right person to ask about what AI means for literary criticism. You've obviously been thinking about large language models, about distance reading, about the implications of various forms of digital technology for literary criticism for quite some time. Certainly for most of the rest of us, the last year has felt like an approaching storm, this onslaught of administrative worry about AI in the classroom. It has felt like something either new has already happened or is about to happen that is going to transform how technology impacts what we do. And I'm curious if you have experienced it that way as somebody who was already well informed. And if so, what is really changing with the introduction and popularization more accurately, maybe, of right. things like chat GPT? And That's a good question. And you're right that the last year, the sort of public understanding of generative AI has really accelerated. Really, it's gone from nothing to, I was on a drive time AM radio show for five minutes talking about, can you use ChatGPT to plan your weekend outing, right? That would never have happened two years ago. But you're also right that people who were at all aware of where machine learning was, was headed could see this coming over the horizon starting around 2019, the whole GPT series of releases. It was very clear where things were headed. And really what the last year has done is more like put railings on it and make it more controllable. It's not so much like that it's vastly more powerful than it was, but that it no longer has a tendency to drive off the road as much as it did. Yeah. Will you explain that a little bit further? Because I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about this, yeah. that it's that the platform is not growing more powerful, but it's growing more precise. Yeah. Or, or even more like presentable mm -hmm. in a kind of like social polish way. So the raw underlying logic of generative language modeling is it just continues a sentence. Whatever prompt you give it, whatever series of words, whether it's from Jane Austen or from a list of items on a blog somewhere, it's going to continue that list or it's going to continue that character's speech. It's what would probably happen next? That's not actually what people wanted in a chatbot because you would say something like, um, please answer this question for me. And it might re reply with another question because that could be part of a list of questions. Let's continue the list mm -hmm. of questions. No, I actually wanted you to answer my question is not something that it was automatically getting. It just continues the language. So it, it needed some additional tuning of several forms. One is called instruction tuning. Another one is reinforcement learning with human feedback. But basically, it was teaching it the social context to, to say, this is a conversation. You have one half of the conversation. What you're going to get are likely going to be questions. You're supposed to respond to them. And that was like one slice 
of the world of language that it had learned, it, it needed to focus on that slice and not continue lists and things. Yeah. So most concern trolling around AI in the last year for academia has been directed at its implications for pedagogy and particularly for writing pedagogy. And I would direct listeners to something you wrote that I found very insightful called We Can Save What Matters About Writing. So on the one hand, I'd like you to summarize some of what you think are the most important things for that conversation, which I think probably all of our listeners have become invested in it to some degree, even if it's only because it's something that's popping up in their department meetings and faculty meetings and administrative revisions to student policies and handbooks and things like that. But I'm actually really interested whether you think that's where we should be concentrating most of our energy, and if not, where? Yeah, I don't think that's where we should be concentrating most of our energy. I think it's an accident of the way this has been introduced to people that they think of it as like a paper writing machine or really like a machine that writes for you mm -hmm. at all. There are so many other ways of using language models. You can have conversations with them. You can use them to read long texts and summarize them for you rather than, than write. And the idea that people are going to use them just, oh, write me something. Please write me a whole document. Go do it and then just come back with a document. I don't think people other than maybe undergrads who are getting close to a deadline are really going to want to do that very much because you usually care about what the document says, right? You're going to send that to someone and you don't want it to say what you don't mean. You want it to say what you do mean. I think the idea of these as kind of robot writers is oversold, not because they're not capable. It's just that they're capable of doing many other things that are, there's probably a bigger market for. That said, yeah, there are definitely consequences for writing pedagogy. I think one thing that you could say to briefly summarize that would be that a lot of the consequences for writing pedagogy are things we should have seen coming from the internet itself, which made a lot of our old assignments, they were already asking students to sort of retrieve answers to questions that have a lot of answers out there. And those worked in the 20th century because students couldn't easily retrieve the answers, but really with internet search, that was already not a great strategy. The chatbots accelerate that. Yeah. So another thing that came up in our correspondence, very relevant to the series, is you make a distinction between literary criticism, literary history, and literary theory. That distinction is really important for the podcast that we are debating to some extent, these various methods and ways of thinking and training in literary studies. And so I was hoping you would both define how you divide those three independent approaches wow. to literary studies. And then the implication you were making is that AI means something different for each of them. Okay. I think the way I'll approach that is to start with literary theory. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you will get out of what I'm about to say a really crisp definition of that, because that's actually a complicated social of course. problem. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you'll get an implicit definition out of it. I'm going to start with theory because I think that's the place where it's easiest to see why literary scholars should be excited and interested in 
AI, machine learning, basically because it's a huge vindication of stuff we were saying throughout the 20th century, that writing and culture are really central to all this stuff that human beings are doing. The people who started the field of artificial intelligence, they had a background in math and so on, and they started out thinking, oh, what this is going to be is we're going to teach machines the rules of logic, because clearly that's the key to what it means to think. And then later on, as that didn't really produce results, they were like, maybe we'll teach them to rotate blocks and stack the red block on top of the blue block, because clearly that's the primitive core of what it means to be intelligent, to solve physical The problems. use of tools. Yeah, it's tool, exactly. Man, the tool user, the shape rotator. And that was all, that, nope, nope, none of that really was productive. What's been enormously productive is large archives of writing. That's been really useful and effective. And moreover, it's not just that language has mattered because it is a way for the subject to express itself and reflect its own goals to itself and reason self-consciously. No, subjects don't matter at all. They're, these models are not subjects. They don't really have goals as such. Instead, they're discursive formations. They can only think out loud. Language constitutes them. And that is a really profound vindication of a lot of things that literary and cultural theorists, especially but not solely structuralists, were saying in the later 20th century. It's not a complete vindication. I think there's some distance between the discursive formation that these models are and what a human being is. I still do think we are subjects and a little different from a model. But the structuralist approach to language has been so enormously productive that they really need a victory lap. It would be crazy not to give them that. And really, it's a victory lap for people who care about language and culture at all. That turns out to be really central to what we do. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of theory side. From a theory yeah. point of view, these models are hugely vindicating. Now, what about history? I'm going to I, I haven't defined literary theory, but I've, I guess I've implied that I think yeah. it's coextensive with cultural theory and shades over into linguistics and so on. These models are going to be obviously useful for literary historians just because they'll allow us to study at scale things that distant reading never really succeeded at grappling with, like characters' motives or plots, plot tropes. We'll be able to use language models to ask questions about stories. You can use them as readers and then scale that up to thousands, hundreds of thousands of stories. I think people who are interested in literary history, at least from a sort of distant perspective, are already excited about mm -hmm. that. So I don't need to say a whole lot about that because they're already running yeah. more in that direction. It's already yielded a whole lot of maybe things that we expected, but maybe not to the degree that we actually found things about racial representation, gender representation, right. how language is coded by particular demographics, national identities, things like that. That research, I think, is already incredibly rich and generative. Yes, yeah. tons of stuff going on. I would say just because this is something when literary history comes up, when questions at scale come up, the question of whether we expected it is always yeah. is an interesting one. Like The way I would put it is, very often on these questions, we don't have well-formed expectations. Mm -hmm. Like The way people often describe it is, maybe that's what I would have expected, but the would there is the key word. Mm -hmm. If I had posed the question... If I had even thought to ask. Yeah, but we're used to a model where there are clear expectations and you have to reverse them counterintuitively, but on this mm -hmm. scale, 
often people have not posed the questions because they weren't very answerable. But so much for literary history, right? People who just distant reading are already, it's very clear how you would use these. The part that's maybe will address a broader audience and is a little harder to figure out, but for that reason, maybe more interesting, is what they'll do to our understanding of individual texts and authors. Because this is not stuff that can only be used at distance at all. It's very clearly, these models are capable of close reading. Yeah. Even a few years ago, I read a book by Benjamin Blatt, I think, in which he had studied like a hundred of the most canonical authors and was looking at their discrepancies in vocabulary, grammatical construction. And obviously, the generative AI is a lot more powerful now than it was when you wrote that book. But I even remember reading some of the stuff about Twain and finding these really interesting tidbits about Twain's disproportionate use of words like Satan and shucks, right? And his disproportionate suppression of adjectives. And oftentimes, Twain is treated as a kind of self-taught writer who probably doesn't abide a lot of the technical virtues ascribed by modern writing programs. But in fact, what this found was that actually he he abided them a lot more than some of his peers. And Mm so maybe one example of this potential to look at not just massive corpuses by lots and lots of writers, but even by individuals. Yes. And of course, we don't have to limit ourselves to words anymore either. That's what's fun about this is that you can ask it, read me 10,000 detective stories and find patterns in who was the killer or what the killer's motive is. We could never get at character motive with word counting. I was just never going to get there. But These models, you can simply ask them like a structured set of questions about stories. But that's still distant reading. If if we're interested in individual authors, the key there, I think, is that we can train multiple models and the models are only as good as the corpora they're trained on. They're only capable of understanding what they were trained on, which is great. We can use that to make these models levers. So you can train a model on everything up to 1826, British and American literature, everything you've got in English up to 1826, except Walter Scott. Take Walter Scott completely out. Take all references to Walter Scott out. And then you can give it a two-sentence plot summary of a Fenimore Cooper book and say, flesh this out. Give me the novel length or maybe just short story length version of this and see if the absence of Scott makes a difference. Then you can have another model that's trained on everything up to 1826, including Scott, and see what it does when fleshing out the same plot summaries to see, that's one way of asking the question, like what difference did one author make to another? Mm -hmm. But we don't have to just delete authors. We could subtract like character types or plot tropes from the literary record Mm -hmm. and see what difference they make. Or we could get models to represent different perspectives. Say train one on British literature, criticism, and journalism, train one on American literature, criticism, and journalism, give them both a novel by Henry James and ask it about some detail in the plot and have them debate Mm -hmm. and see what difference national perspective Mm -hmm. makes on interpretation. So the fact that these models are limited is actually what makes them really useful for, for interpretation. I'm just going to have to play a little bit of devil's advocate here. I've spent quite a bit of time studying the impact of applied statistics for econometrics. And 
Of course, one of the discoveries that has been made over the last several decades is how flawed many of those models are, how deeply they are encoded with various kinds of biases, how they produce the results that the, the economists who create them want them to produce or oftentimes right. are selectively used only in situations where they will produce those results. And so I do have to ask, what concerns do you have about the potential limitations of these tools, what they might be excluding, missing. Do you feel like their results are going to be entirely reliable? What do we know about the underlying right. code that might give us pause? Yeah. So first, let me just underline like the, the fact that they're biased, that they, they absorb what they're trained on and, and reproduce what they're trained on is exactly what I think makes them valuable for literary scholars because that's why you can get them to embody different perspectives, why they can have revealing blind spots like the absence of Walter Scott or the absence of a complete national tradition or a subgenre. You can use those blind spots to create parallax between different perspectives. So it's really key, I think, that our, our approach to machine learning, people are right that it, there's nothing objective or universal about it. That was the 1960s dream of like computer logical, you know, I only understand logic. If you show me a painting, smoke will emerge from my ears. That's not what we're aiming to be, this sort of abstract, perfect universal logic. It's the fact that they are, they're really just expressions of culture and language. They're not abstract reasoning entities at all, that it makes them useful. So the whole frame of, oh, they seem universal and rational, but actually have bias, I would flip that around. They embody cultural biases, which is why they have value for us as students of culture. Now, if they're all produced by Google, they will embody only one set of biases, right? Mm -hmm. That would be the problem. Or if they're produced by Google and OpenAI. Okay, great. We have two slightly, very slightly different. Mm -hmm. We don't want that for sure. That's right. to me the main danger. All right, let's, yeah, that was going to be another one of my questions is obviously a lot of this is happening, at least the, the part that the public is aware of, is happening under the umbrellas of these massive tech giants, venture capital involved in the case of open AI at a kind of discrete, partially unknowable level, right? And so I, I would say one of the questions I really wanted to ask you is how do you see the ethics of it? Where are you concerned about the input of corporate conglomeration, the ways in which universities could become indebted to these tech companies? What do we need to do in order to protect these tools? My answer to this may not, I know it won't make everyone happy, but my answer is that you want them to get out in the world and you want people to be able to do this and it's not protect them from google but liberate them from mm -hmm. the, the corporations and i think that is happening because it turns out to be a pretty good strategy to release your stuff openly and let people tinker with it build on it meta that's basically their strategy they've released these models pretty much openly and hoping that will do an end run around the people who have a, a lead on them, like Google. Mm -hmm. There are also just non-corporations. There's, there's this mm -hmm. group, Eleuther AI, which is mostly, it seems to be mostly a bunch of grad students and postdocs, actually. Mm -hmm. It's academic, but younger academics. 
with some sources of big compute that I don't fully know what they are, but it's an open organization and it's building its own models. And then there's Allen AI, which again is quasi academic. Mm -hmm. So I think the way things are headed right now, lots of players are building them. It's not like the compute is only Google has it or the, right. the expertise is only Google has it. The danger, the way this could end up being monopolized is that the data right now, the big corporations are the only people who have the kind of secrecy and lawyers to completely range across the data mm -hmm. comfortably. So the models trained by open source groups are often not quite as good in part because they have to do things in the public and obey the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. Whereas the companies have enough money to do it all in-house and they can do whatever they want. Right. So this is where what has certainly become an increasing interest for authors and artists are their copyright protected works being abused in some way. I'm, I'm curious how you think about this. As a scholar who believes heartily in open access and fair use, and that's really an important thing for literary studies and always has been, I tend to be a little skeptical of those kinds of claims, but I also realize that this is being used on a scale that's far more than me quoting a passage or borrowing a so soundbite from something. So I think a lot of people who, who were for open culture when that meant being against sort of Disney's monopoly or, or the recording <laughs> industry's monopoly are now blinking and swallowing and having second thoughts as they look at a technology that is making a lot of, to be frank, making a lot of white collar workers have the kinds of worries about automation that people in other professions have had for centuries. And I don't think that those worries are misplaced. There's no guarantee about what technological change will do. You can look at the past and you can say, okay, industrialization ended up creating new jobs, but th there's no promise. That's not written down anywhere as a law of nature. And even if it were, it is not the case if you look at the history that the people who were displaced by industrialization had an easy time of it mm -hmm. or got those new jobs that were created. I don't dismiss the concerns that writers or teachers have. I think those are real concerns. There's no way to know for sure what the outcome will be. I am excited enough by the possibilities I see emerging that I am willing, personally willing, to give it a try. The printing press, right? Yeah. There's no way of knowing it would lead to two centuries of bloody war, <laughs> it, which it did, or it helped foster that in Europe. On the whole, I would say the printing press turned out to be a good thing. But you, you, they, no one had any promises about yeah. that, right? I think we're in a similar situation. And I, I, don't, I don't think that I have any promises, but I am excited enough by what I see happening yeah. that I'm willing to give it a go. So that's my sort of take on the underlying social issue. Yeah. Intellectual property is a legal thing. We'll make those laws up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the one thing I would say about the, the laws and the real sort of concern shaping them is I think one of the biggest dangers there is clamping down on intellectual property in an attempt to, to protect the little guy. What actually that does is it means the only people who can train these models are people with big legal staff. Yeah. And that, I think, is how we could shoot ourselves in the foot here. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a fantastic point. And of course, the history of 
monopoly law and intellectual property law is filled with examples of exactly that happen. Trying to address issues with standard oil or big tobacco ends up hurting workers, small firms, creating barriers to entry. It's a great point. And I really appreciate that the American technophile almost religious faith in creative destruction is definitely visible in this era of Silicon Valley investment in AI. But you're absolutely right. Both this technology is likely to create some pretty massive problems, even in its best case scenario. And there is no guarantee just because something is new that it is going to yield a better, more verdant society. I think that it's very true, but also... And also, we've never had those guarantees in the past. People imagine, in retrospect, that it would have been easy to see that the printing press was going to be good. But it it was not easy. And, And I think it's painful for us to admit to ourselves that we really don't have any crystal balls and... It's not that we have no way to control. We can choose what kind of world we want to live in. But the lack of crystal ball really mm-hmm. cuts pretty deeply. Makes that choice very yeah, very yeah. difficult. I'm going to ask then a, a little bit more close to home personal question. What are you doing with this technology in order to address your pressing interests in your scholarship? Yeah, there's two categories of things. One is just like things that it can obviously already be used for that I don't have to be clever about, but it's just like obvious. There are simple things like questions about the role that food and money play in fiction. That's going to be easy to get at now. We could always notice when money was referred to, but now we can ask, what is the money doing in the story? What is its plot role? Things like that. That's easy. That doesn't really require being thoughtful. You can use the model like a research assistant. Things that I have in mind that are a little bit more ambitious are trying to change the way the models are trained to make them a little better at thinking perspectively. Because right now, they're really not good at that. You can ask it, like, what would Freud say about this story? And it will give you a Wikipedia version of that. Because what it's doing, it's being prompted by things it's read about Freud. Now, it may also have read some books by Freud. But, you know, the word Freud is not in every page of a book by Freud. So it doesn't really know how to map a question about him to things by him. Because remember, it's just like predicting the next word. So what it needs is a way of being better at speaking in the voice of someone when it's trying to answer a question about what so-and-so would say about something. Not just the Wikipedia version, but let's try to get, remember what you've actually read from Freud, like, how would he put this? Mm-hmm. And I would like to right. make the models a little better at that. Right. The user being able to segment the corpus in some way to say prioritize. And I think this is really where it gets hard, right? Because I don't want that prioritization to be happening on the back end where we can't see it. But I would right. love a researcher to be able to say, I really want you to prioritize the books by Freud over the books about Freud, over mentions of Freud across the whole corpus. We can definitely have that control. People are out there retraining these models right now with any corpus they want, really. We can have that control. Yeah, that's very encouraging. So one of the sort of through lines for this series has been anticipating, as Andrew Hobrick has called it, post-print era of literary studies. 
And obviously these are models that are trained primarily on text. Some of them also trained on images, on the conversion of image to text. But AI has changed my podcasting work far faster than it has changed my teaching, my writing, my research. The changes that have happened to podcasts in the last year have been dramatic. And so I'm curious, thinking about the sort of multimedia, cross-media implications for this, as related to literary studies, as literary studies is becoming more multimedia. Yeah, absolutely. I think the big picture there, I would say, is that I see the boundaries between creative and critical work in general likely to get destabilized by this in multiple ways. Even just looking at text, the kind of counterfactual game I was just imagining, like imagine if Daphne du Maurier had written a science fiction novel. That's not just something that's going to interest critics who, who are trying to figure out what a particular character type would do in a different genre. But obviously people want to play with that. People will, will use that in a fan fiction sort of way. So just looking at text, if you know the website TV Tropes, which is a fan created version of sort of structuralist literary criticism, I see that on steroids because people are going to be playing with these models and trading tr tropes and character types to see what they do. Probably an interactive version of fan fiction where the reader may sometimes play a character. Mm -hmm. But okay, so that's all text. It's also true that they're going very rapidly beyond text to voices and video. I think voice is a little bit stronger than video right now. Video is hard. We'll get there. The voice stuff is pretty scary right now. I, yeah. Already. Yeah. Have you heard the the voice interaction on ChatGPT at all? Mm -mm. It no. is NPR announcer quality, the yeah. intonation. Yeah. It's not only that it does not sound robotic, it sounds better than most people. It specifically sounds more thoughtful than most people right. because it's all about i don't have to tell you the importance of like pauses mm -hmm. intonation whatever they've trained on yeah. they, they, they got it really good i have conversations with my phone about the devonian era and then i ask what should i do about that barberry that's growing too big in the garden and it's eerie the voice thing shook me up more than I expected it would because being an intellectual I don't think that mm -hmm. production quality should matter but oh my god it does and I think in particular when this rolls out for everyone's cell phone when Siri basically or whatever mm -hmm. voice you've got on your cell phone suddenly not, not only sounds much more thoughtful but actually is much more able to answer complex questions instead of just sending you to a website mm -hmm. That's when people who are not academics or professionals are going to actually notice this stuff because the voice will make it. Mm -hmm. Sounding smart is really as important as anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about this is that actually most people don't care a whole lot about the quality of writing or aren't really <laughs> hyper aware of it. Is it really intelligent? No, neither are the people on your TV news most of the time, right. but they, they don't, yeah, we don't care. Yeah. Production quality is going to matter a lot. Yeah. The, and it's going to be democratized. That's the thing that I'm certainly seeing from the podcast mm -hmm. is that like the quality of production that I can now create almost single-handedly 
in far less time than would have been necessary even a year ago is going to start to rival Slate or like the major podcast networks, right? There's going to, it's going to be increasingly hard to distinguish between somebody who's making something completely independently on a very small budget and somebody who has advertising backing or venture capital backing. Yeah. With, I'm sure, problematic questions about misinformation. For sure. Yeah. What people always raise there. And sure, that's valid, but it also means, so I have a 12-year-old niece who informed me, because I didn't know about this website, but there was a website called Character AI where you can talk to anime characters. There's a model trained on that character and you can talk, but you can also talk to chairs. There's a model of what a chair would say, and it's very resentful of sofas and she finds this hilarious. And once you add voice to that, that the cultural consequences of that are just going to snowball in ways like when 12 year olds are having these kinds of conversations i'm sure some disturbing stuff no doubt because Mm -hmm. always new technology gets used for that but it will also just there'll be things we can't anticipate in in terms of kinds of interactive art forms that come out of that how about within the politics of the university one of the overarching conversations for the american vandal as a whole and definitely for this series has been the place of the humanities within a neoliberal university, the increasing financialization of American higher education. AI, I imagine, is going to be one vector of misinformation, disinformation, misreading, confusion, perhaps sometimes abuse. What concerns you about how AI is being discussed within the sort of bureaucracy of higher education. I strongly feel that we need to approach this as part of a liberal education, that we need to think about understanding machine learning on a a fundamental level as part of what a liberally educated person needs to in the 21st century. I don't think we've gotten there yet. I think Mm -hmm. our conversation, for instance, about ChatGPT is very much patch our assignments, patch our syllabi. Mm -hmm. So the broader question you're asking, though, because just to put my cards on the table, I'm sitting now in a school of information sciences, and 75% of my line is in information science rather than English. And that's basically because the school of information sciences is better positioned politically within the university, but more critically in the minds of students Mm -hmm. to promise to offer that kind of liberal education that trains people to think critically both about technology and with information technology. It's not that it would be impossible for that to happen, though, in a history department or an English department. It could happen, but putting those departments in a position to benefit from what's happening would require a lot of strategizing and alliance building and politics, basically. And the momentum has been against them in some ways, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It will vary from school to school, no doubt. There, I used to teach at a small college where, of course, there was no school of information science. And other departments will have to form a coalition. And maybe in that context, you will get English and history departments playing a critical mm-hmm. role in the emergence of critical thinking about technology. Yeah. Information science schools were schools of library science 30 years ago. And they could have said, what we do is libraries. Computers are great, but someone else should do that. 
we want to stick with library science. But that's very much not what they did. There was a conscious effort to rebrand as iSchools, information science schools, very deliberate attempt to stay one step ahead of what people could see was coming because libraries were having to change with new information technology. So that's a culture I'm now very immersed in and very used to where this school is constantly thinking like, like what's coming next and we need to get ahead of it. Candidly, like I got my degree in an English department and the, the culture there was the reverse. It was like, if something new comes along, we have to decide whether it gets to, to come in the gates. And the answer is usually going to be no, it's not sophisticated enough to come in the gates. We control the gates and Marxist literary theory, maybe <laughs> if, it, if it can be done mm -hmm. in a styly way, maybe. But computers, oh, come on. No, that's yeah. not, it's not really, no. So we're not used to the idea that, in, in fact, it's de classe, the notion that we have to stay one step ahead of constantly sort of reinvent yourself. And I think there's a culture where that's not seen as yeah. really intellectual. Yeah, yeah. It's viewed as something that belongs to the sort of trade school, right? Yes. Yeah, belongs yes. to the B school. And what it seems to me that what information science is, at least to some extent, doing is finding a way to fuse those two We're kind trying. of cultures. Yeah. Trying. It's maybe the best of both of them. Friction, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure, inevitably. If you were going to give some direction to, say, entry-level graduate students in literary and cultural studies who are considering entering into a field or profession on the cusp of this transformation, which, as you said, nobody can predict. None of us have the crystal ball. But maybe what do they need to be thinking about? What do they need to be paying attention to? What are the questions they need to be asking if they're thinking about becoming a kind of humanities scholar in this age of rapid technological change? So I think what's happening now just underlines um, something that people in digital humanities have been saying for two or three years, maybe a little longer, which is that the sort of coding part of it was oversold or too visible as what made this important. It's not that you don't need to learn to code at all because you still do actually, even if these models can help you a bit with that, you still do. But that's not the important thing. The important thing that we're lacking is not just like a sort of technical polish or like how to get a program to do something. It's some underlying concepts. What is a model? That's more critical. Like, what is a model? Why is machine learning different from like 20th century statistics? Mm -hmm. what, were, what were the critical sort of conceptual advances or challenges there in terms of learning not to overfit your data or learning the necessity of certain kinds of fuzziness yeah. in your model? Basically, what I'm saying is statistics mm -hmm. is still indispensable. Yeah. And the lexicon of statistics, it sounds like almost as much as the, yes. the theories. Yeah. Yeah. And statistics, I would say the lexicon, but sort of statistics is a way of thinking. I never had a course on statistics. So mm -hmm. I thought statistics was just like a set of rules for how to come up with the right answer in your <laughs> science project or something. But it's much closer to something like philosophy of science, really. There mm -hmm. are big philosophical debates yeah. within it. And understanding how statisticians reason about that yeah. stuff is, yeah. is what you need. 
I didn't yeah. understand implicit bias and still I started studying statistics. It was only when I was starting to think through what statistics do, how they're made, that I started to understand systemic bias, which is something that was obviously introduced to me through cultural theory, but the level of embedding didn't yeah. become clear to me until I started to think about how these models are made, who's making them. Yeah, yeah. The political economy line of your work would definitely, <laughs> that's one of the clearest places where statistics has been guiding philosophy, ideology, mm -hmm. and there's wars in statistics, and, you, yeah. and it all matters. So I think that's what I would say. Yeah. What our conversation is bringing me to in terms of thinking about the crisis is that on the one hand, you seem to be saying that critical theory is maybe an increasingly valuable set of texts and ideas and ways of thinking and approaches to knowledge that's going to need to be absorbed not only within the humanities and some of the softer sciences, but actually is going to need to be, to some extent, part of a holistic education. Yes. And yet at the very same time, the places where that training has been taking place are under duress. They are facing austerity. And even they are moving away from teaching exactly those things that you're identifying yes. as maybe the most important things they could teach. Yes. Yes. I'm afraid that's right. So, someone is going to be teaching structuralist literary theory to undergrads in 2035 because it has a real connection to all this stuff like AI that people see as valuable and that will indeed matter in their concrete professional lives. But there's no guarantee that it will be departments of literature that teach structuralist literary theory. It could be taught somewhere else, like by linguists, under the guise of the distributional hypothesis, which is how mm -hmm. they think of it. Yeah, I, I very much agree. The, the material that we have traditionally worked on as humanists who study language and culture is only getting more important, but that doesn't mean that we are automatically well positioned. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work that's going to be necessary to position ourselves well in relation to it. For more about this episode, including a complete bibliography, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash unbundling or subscribe to my Substack. This has been the unlucky 13th episode of the eighth season of the American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I am Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening.